Okay, Amber, you can be next if you can hear this. Yep, I can hear you just fine. Um, okay, good. I'm glad the audio's back. Thank you, Mercedes. And go ahead, Amber. All right. Hello, Tom. Um, my questions are kind of related to things that were already discussed. I have a question about depression and anxiety and one about changing perceptions and attitudes. Um, the depression and anxiety one, you know, recently uh, I felt triggered. This is just the background for everybody in my question with anxiety and everything. And I went to a healthcare professional and mentioned it. And, um, you know, they asked about a familial sort of connection and any family history and, um, you know, said that it sounded like there there was and maybe some people were undiagnosed and maybe they were just wired wrong with anxiety and depression. So despite my experiences that may have cultivated being pre or, you know, to have anxiety, that it was the familiar connection. And I know, and it seemed like, you know, I'm not on medication and it's not something, I don't even like to drink tap water. I mean, I have green hair, which screams poison, but you know, I'm sure that will fall away. That's just fun for a little while. But, you know, I'm not someone who would choose medication. That that kind of seemed to, you know, surprise them or, you know, because there might have been a family history of anxiety or depression or whatever. So I'm just wondering, like, a different perception to look at this familial thing. And if fear has, seems that it has a physiology itself. So if the family is, handing down these fears, um, could we look at it as that's why the physiology, uh, physiology persists? Um, so I'm just wondering if you could talk about that. Yes, that's, uh, that does work that way. Uh, you tend to pick things up. You pick up ways of dealing with things. You pick up attitudes uh, from your environment. And of course, your family is that most intimate of environments. And when you're a child, particularly, it's your parents, because your parents are almost godlike. They know everything. They take care of you. So as you have experiences in this world, you tend to create a model of existence based on those experiences. So if your experience is that life is harsh and, and uh, terrible, then you feel maybe like an, a, um, a powerless victim then that can go forward in your life just because that's the way it was in your childhood. You can go forward then in your life and feel that way, even though now you're, you know, 50 or 60 years old, have $2 million in the bank, can do whatever you want, and you still feel like a victim. You see, a victim that can't, you know, that's always under siege. You've got this siege mentality of things you always have to watch out because there's something going to get you. And you carry those things along with you. They're fears that you, that you get, you know, your if your parents are terrified of water, you know, then neither one of them swim. Well, in those families, the children tend to be terrified of water and don't leave, you know, don't learn to swim. So you can pass fears around. People do pick them up and then they have to get rid of them. So that's part of, what we do in our families is part of what we do as parents is that we raise our children to see the world much as we see it. They have much the same, a lot of the same attitudes that we have. And that's sometimes fortunate. If we have really good attitudes and are really caring, loving, you know, wonderful people, then that's a good thing. 
if we're not so wonderful, then that's not such a good thing, but it's just the way it is. It gives those, we give our children then things that they have to figure out, that they have to work out. And if they don't work it out, they'll pass it on to their children and so on. So yes, you can, you can kind of inherit fears from other people and not just from your family or your parents, but you inherit fears often from your culture, just your culture. If everybody in your culture tends to be afraid of something, well, then you tend to be afraid of it too, even though you've never had any, any uh, association with it. You know, it, it uh, and sometimes that fear can even build into hysteria. I remember back in the, back in the fifties, you know, we had this big fear about, uh, you know, nuclear weapons. And when I was in third grade, we'd practice drills where we all, you know, hid under our desks, you know, while the nuclear bombs went off and so on. There was this Cold War mentality going on then. And you had whole generations of people with this, this sense of fear that at any time, you know, everybody might die. Because that was when you're, when you're in third grade and that's what they tell you. Oh, we're going to practice you know, in case a nuclear weapon goes off. Here's what you do, you know, and it was kind of silly. You know, what do you do if a nuclear weapon goes off? You put your head under your desk, you know, well, like that's going to help. All it did was inculcate fear in probably, you know, 200 million children, which was not helpful at all. But our culture can can give us fears, things that we, you know, things that we believe, things that we believe are going to get us and that are a threat to us. And though they've never bothered us at all. So yeah, fear is a thing that you can get from others, but you have to have the potential for that fear. You have to have a, you know, a place where that fear can grow. If you're a fearless person, if you don't, if you aren't afraid, about those things, then even though you experience that fear in your culture or in your family, it doesn't stick. It just slides right off. You don't buy it. So you have to have that potential for fear in there for it to stick, for it to affect you. And that's, uh, you know, so that's your contribution to it. It's not just that you're the poor innocent person that, you know, gets, gets a fear, but you had to have a, the potential for that fear. That had to be a, a potential part of your reality for you to accept it and take it on. So now it's your job to get rid of it when you when you're older. You have to deal you have to deal with it. But uh, yeah, many of our fears are like that. My uh, my daughter used to be really really afraid of me removing splinters. So she'd get a splinter in her in her finger. You know, I'd have to go get the needle and I she'd have to sit still and I'd have to pick the the splinter out. And she'd see me coming. All she had to do is look at me standing three feet away from her holding that, that needle. And she'd start to scream and say, it hurts, it hurts, you know, because she had this tremendous fear of what was going to happen and how awful it was going to be. So then I'd go sit down next to her and I'd just touch her with the end of my finger to, and she'd scream again, it hurts, it hurts, you see. And I barely had touched her anyplace, but she had, was so, convinced how awful it was going to be that every tiny touch or anything was horrible. So that's a, that's a belief. That's a belief and, and a fear. So, you know, that's 
kind of silly, you know, you can, you can laugh at that, but we do the same thing in other ways. We do the same thing. And when we approach a relationship, we may have a fear that this isn't going to work out. This couldn't possibly work out, you know, because they never do and so on. And then we create, just like my daughter created that terrible pain all in her mind because she believed it. We can create a failed relationship just because we believe it. Or if we think we're inadequate, we can create our being inadequate just because we believe we are. You see, so it works the same way as that splinter. It uh, the fear is is a is a thing that is debilitating. So did I answer your question, Amber, or did I just go around it? I think you you answered it. I was um, I know you kind of uh, spoke to it earlier about how our fears and beliefs can create the um, you know affect neurotransmitters and create and create the problems physiologically. Um, and so, yeah, I think you answered it. And my, my other question with the perceptions and attitudes is tied into that because, you know, as I'm surveying over my own life and, you know, my behaviors kind of, you know, trying to just admit, you know, what I see and everything I've, I'm unearthing, you know, attitudes and perceptions that are just not what I want and that are not good. They're not helpful um, and you talk about us experiencing our fears. And when we recognize that to say, you know, no, I don't want to be like that is perception and attitude the same way as it first kind of like an intellectual process where you're talking to yourself and then the change happens slowly and what kind of tools could, could be used. I know people mention like affirmations and things like this. Um, I was just wondering what you have to say about, about yeah. that. Well, the thing that actually gets rid of the fear is your intent to get rid of the fear. Okay. So it's your intention to get rid of the fear. I really want this, not to have this fear, not to react that way, not to have that feeling in this situation. That intention at the being level is what gets rid of the fear. Okay. So if you have tools that help you focus that intention, like an affirmation helps you focus your intention on getting rid of the fear. You know, it's like people put thing post notes, sticky notes on their refrigerator door that says, you know, I am a wonderful person and this is going to be a good day. And they read that every morning when they get up and go to the refrigerator because it helps them get through the day better. Well, all that is, is a, is a tool for, for uh, helping them with their intention. It helps them have an intention to have a good day. It helps them modify the probability that they will have a good day. So you can have tools that help you do that, but really all you need is at a, at a deep level, at your, it's your intuitive place. It's your being level place. I want to get rid of this. This thing is a problem in my life. This thing is informing my decisions. This is, you know, I make my choices because I have this fear. I have to stop and not be that way. And if that's the way you really feel, that's a strong intent from the being level. And if you maintain that for, you know, six months or a year or however long it takes, the fear will go away. You will get over it. So any kind of game you want to play that helps, you know, that helps uh, make that intention come out, whether it's a post-it note on your refrigerator to remind you, you're not going to, you know, express that fear. You're not going to stuff it down. You just don't want to be it. You don't want to that 
ever to boil up inside of you, then that'll help. Remind yourself of it all the time. Keep it in your mind. I am not going to be like that. And it'll just go away. The intention is, uh, is what changes things in consciousness. So you just have to want to do it. But if you only have the ad as an intellectual want, I want to do it, then it's not very powerful. You have to really feel it at a deep level that you want to do it, not just think that you should do it. Or it'd be nice if I could do it. That won't work much. You have to really want to do it. If you really want to do it, you'll catch yourself when that fear starts to bubble up and just say no and don't it, you know, don't let it control you. It'll just over time go away. Thanks, Tom. So I I feel like, you know, my biggest block is fear. Of, well, one of them is fear of inadequacy. And so I feel that at my being level, I want to get rid of it. But so that must not be true at this point or something. But I, I don't know. I, I'm somebody who likes, I think using tools is um, helpful. I like metaphors and, and things like this. But um, I can feel that at this point, you know, when I'm, I'm noticing my fear, it is more of an intellectual process, I guess. And I can tend to sort of fixate on it's a problem instead of, um, you know, just doing, taking actions that kind of are the opposite of the fear, basically. So um, your response was really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That'll work. You know, we, we heard uh, uh, Cheryl talk about her tool was to make uh, uh, courage badges. Well, you know, you can make courage badges, or you can put have a, a certain uh, necklace that you wear and you can say, when I wear this necklace, I'm going to have courage. I'm not going to respond to that fear. I'm going to be different. Those things won't bother me when I'm wearing my, my courage necklace or my get, get rid of fear necklace. And all that is, is it's just a tool. But you can do that. You can make up these tools and they will work because it's a, it's a thing that keeps reminding you to stay focused on getting rid of it. So that's what you need to do. And and uh, any sort of tool like that will will work, but it takes time. You say you're not so good at it, but until you've worked on it real seriously for six months, you don't know whether you're very good at it or not. Don't expect that. Oh, I want this thing to go away, and now it's been two weeks and it hadn't gone away. I must not be doing it right. It takes a lot longer than that. You know, it may take years to get rid of something that's a big fear, a big fundamental fear that's deep in the core of you, it's going to take some time. It'll probably take some years to get over it, but you won't get over it if you don't start on it. So don't be uh, put off by it. it might take a long time. Just keep working at it and uh, be steadfast with it. Don't feel like if it's not gone in a month or two months that somehow you're not doing it right. Just keep after it you will succeed. Your intent will change it. All right, thank you, Amber. <laughs> um, Lawrence is back with us on the Fireside Chat. Lawrence, if you'd like to go ahead with your question. Sure, hey, hey Tom, how you doing? Lawrence? Nice to talk with you again. <laughs> so um, my question was, in one of your videos, you are you able to hear me? Yes, I hear you just fine. All right, I got some video lag, so that's all right. So, um, 
in, in one of your videos, you were talking about raising the, uh, the pH level of a bottle of water, saying that if one uses their focused intent, they could modify the bottle of water and move it up a whole pH level, if I'm not mistaken, right? I think they moved it up. That was the thing that uh, Edward Teller, a physicist, actually did some experiments like that, and they're on YouTube. And he, right. he shows, and I think they did get eventually get it up to a whole, a whole pH number. Yeah, difference. I mean, they got it up just a little at a time, a little bit more, a little bit more. Every time they work on it, they try to raise it just a little bit more or lowered, I guess, if you want to acid. And uh, eventually, they made quite a big difference in the acidity of the water and they did the same thing with the alkaline it's not just acid it worked either way wow all right so so you're saying that so my question about that was that so let's say that um they someone takes a bottle of water like with a ph of 5.0 and then they get the guys in to use their focused intent to uh, raise the ph level I, i'm not sure if you saw this video on youtube before but this one lady she's taking like all the the water that she from the store like Fiji and just regular water and she's putting these pH drops in it and mm -hmm. as she puts the pH drops in like if it's acidic the color of the water is like this like yellow color or whatever right. and if it's like neutral going to a higher pH then it turns to like green and then blue for like for a very rich pH level right. so I was wondering if they so so if someone took the water like let's say with the 5.0 pH and they took the pH drops and they dropped it in there and then it showed the yellow as being acidic or whatever and mm -hmm. then let's say that they using the same water the guy uses focused intent and so little by little I'm not really sure of like when you say that they're they're taking it piece by piece is that just on paper you know so like for instance let's say that um they say that okay, we raised the pH level of this water now from from the 5.0 to the six to 6.0. 6.0 is neutral, so if you drop the pH uh, drops in it, the color should kind of change a little bit from the yellow to maybe like a green. So, wait, is that what you're that saying? Much. If you could move it that much, you could actually get it to change color because this pH testers the same kind of testers you use in swimming pools where you test, uh, you know, chlorine levels and acid levels and that sort of stuff. It's just, you can buy those almost anywhere, but you can buy them at, at the pool places. The chemicals that test acidity, it's sort of like litmus test, you know, in litmus paper, you touch the paper to something and it turns blue or it turns red. It's a right. similar kind of chemicals that they have in it. But what, what he did when he, when he made this, these beaker of water, he took a beaker of water right out of the spigot and then he put the, the, um, a an acid tester in it and got the pH of the water. And then he started trying to, I think, um, lower the pH. And he did that over time. He had the person work on it for maybe a half hour or so. And he'd see that the pH went from neutral, which I think is seven, not six. It went from neutral down to, you know, maybe 6.9 or even 6.95. And then he'd try again, and then it would go from 6.95, you know, uh, down to 6.8. And then he'd try again. But he, over time, he could work it down. It wasn't like he worked on it for 10 minutes and it moved the whole pH level. It very slowly was he able to make it drift down. So eventually, over a fair amount of time working on it, he could get it to change the whole pH level. So I don't know how sensitive those color chemicals are how much pH you actually have to change before they change color, maybe quite a bit. That may be a pretty crude measurement. 
he had a scientific measurement that gave pH to like three decimal places, you know, and a, um, a meter. He had something that uh, that was uh, pretty accurate and very, um, uh, very, yeah, very, very accurate to several decimal, but decimal places. So he could see even small changes. And what happens is you can only change things within the natural uncertainty of those things. And water at any time has some some OH minus and H plus ions drifting around in it. The H plus being the acid side, the OH minuses being to the uh, to the base side. You see, so he used his intent to modify the number of those H pluses or OH minuses within the water, within the uncertainty that was natural for that water. And he could do that, but that only raised it a very little bit. But then give it a while to kind of be equilibrium again, then he could do it again. And that would change it another little bit and then let it equalize and then do it again. Every time he was starting with like a new beaker of water that was a little more acid, and each time he was making it, you know, become even yet a little more acid. So it was a thing that you can only change it as much as the uncertainty. So there's a, some uncertainty about how many H pluses and how many OH minuses there are in a glass of water. So he was changing that within that uncertainty. He didn't sit down, think about it, and wham, there was a, you know, went from 7-0 to 6-0 quickly. That's not what they were doing. They, you have to only modify things within the natural uncertainty. At least that's the easy thing to do. Other than that, you actually have to overrun the, the rule set and do something dramatic. And that doesn't happen that often. I see. And so he and he's so it's by him looking at the water and focusing on the water, like using his. Mm -hmm. like, so it's something to do with him looking at the water also. Oh, no, he didn't have to look at it. The very the experiment he did, the experiment he did had the guy sitting there about uh, six or seven feet away from the beaker of water and looking at it. That was that was how his experimental setup went on. But none of that's necessary. The guy could have been in another room. The guy could have actually been in, an, in another country. You know, he could he could have uh, you know he could be vacationing in China and change the water just as well, even though it was sitting in uh, Teller's lab, you know, here in the United States. So the distance and seeing it isn't important. What's important was the intent to change the pH of that water to create more H plus ions in it. That's what was important. And he focused on that. And if it helped him to actually look at the glass of water sitting on a table in front of him, well, then fine. If that helped his focus. But if he could do it just as well someplace else, uh, it would work just as well. Now, Tiller didn't, didn't examine any of that, but I just happen to know because I know how it works, that it's not position or, or whether the person can actually look at it or whether they touch it or anything else. It's about the intention that they give. But they had him probably six, eight, ten feet away, enough that there wasn't anything he could do to influence it. There's no way he could reach over and, you know, sneak some acid in it or anything. He was sitting across the room and the whole thing was was on a videotape the whole time, was watching him to make sure that there wasn't anything tricky going on about it. And then you saw the meter with its like with its uh, probes in the water that were showing what the what the pH was, and that meter very slowly was starting to tick down as he made it more acid. So that was the experimental setup. And I don't know how to tell you to find it on YouTube, other than I've seen it on YouTube. I know it's out there someplace, but I, you know, like most things we see on YouTube, I have no idea how to find it again.
but it was William Teller. You could do, you could go see William Teller and you may find it at his website where he's got that there and you can actually watch him do it. Right. I'm just wondering uh, how, if, I'm just wondering how does the, how does that particular bottle know to, to, to change the P, its pH, you know, like if he's, so, you know, we, they're using a specific bottle of water, you know, just taking one out of a random selection of water. So it's just like, how does, how does the water, how does, how does that particular water know to change its intent? If he's not. It doesn't, the water doesn't know anything. The water's just water. What he's doing is he is creating more H plus ions in the water that weren't there. He's moving the, the probability of there being more H plus ions in the water. Okay, there's some uncertainty about what's in the water. The uncertainty says, let's say they're gonna be, you know, a thousand H plus and a thousand OH minus, that uh, they just happen to combine, recombine the stuff in a big bottle of water. It's just, it's like that. Those ions are in there all the time. The water changes, okay, so but it's, so it's very, very small. So he's just making a change. He's changing the future probability that there'll be more H plus ions in than there were before. And the change has to be within the uncertainty. So the uncertainty would say that any bottle of water you look at that is this size is going to have a thousand, or maybe it could be 900, or maybe it could be, uh, you know, a thousand one hundred. They change. It's within the uncertainty of the water because that's just minor. It's way down in the in the second decimal place, maybe the pH. So he's just changing that within that uncertainty. Now there's just more H pluses just form up in the water and not so many OHs. That makes the water a little more acid. So he keeps thinking of it and says more of those H pluses just form up in the water because this is a virtual reality. So right. it's virtual water. That's the, okay. that's the thing. So it's, he has to work within the uncertainty that's there. And right. then he can make small, small changes within that uncertainty. But the changes can be additive is the point. All those little changes right. can add up over time. I see. I sort of get it now. It's, I'm just thinking like, so he must he, he must be uh, using some type of device and looking at the pH, H, the pluses and mice. And from that, he's kind of like etching his way up, and he, like just from the device he's using, basically. He could lose, he could use a device as a feedback mechanism. Yes, he could be doing that, but he doesn't have to. Without the device, he could do it just the same. He could sit there and work on it, and then work on it some more. And he could do that, and eventually he'd be able to get the pH to change. Anyway, whether he had the device in it or not, if you just measured it at the beginning and then measured it at the end, he could still do it. So it's not the device that does it, but the device might help him focus. It might help right. him say, oh, okay, when I do this, I see I get the change I want, so I'll do more of this. You know, it may help him focus and help him get his intent steady. So the, right. the device sitting in there all the time would just be a tool. Uh, you okay. can buy things like that from uh, Pear, you know, Pear Labs closed, but they have a, they have a part of Pear Labs now sells gadgets for people to use the same sort of thing in their mind and th and they have a thing that has random numbers it's a it's a random number generator and you can it'll sit there and on your computer screen it'll show you you know the average of the random numbers and that it's going to draw it's going to draw say a, a, you know 100 random numbers take an average another 100 random numbers take an average and you can use your intent to make that average be higher or lower 
And you can buy these devices for, I don't know, not a whole lot of money, plug them into your computer and sit there and use and practice using your mind to influence how that random generator works. And that random generator isn't a, isn't a pseudo random. It's an actual, I think a little, um, um, radioactive source or something that gets actual, you know, random numbers from decay. It's not a, not a pseudo random out of an algorithm. So you can modify how that little thing decays, how that source decays based with your intent. It's a very similar kind of thing. And, uh, you know, look up pair labs and see if you can't find that. Now you get a device, put it on your screen and you can sit there and practice using your intent to modify how a radioactive element decays. Oh, all right. Thank you so much. And uh, my last question was, um, you spoke about going out of body. Um, one of the first ones that I heard was when you and, uh, and uh, Dennis Men Menrick with uh, Robert Monroe went out of body on top, uh, met at the top of the lab and went on mm -hmm. a journey together. And then I saw the, the uh, interview that you did with uh, Kevin Moore and toward the end, you were talking about intent and how somebody could send people thoughts and you really don't know if it's an individual unit of consciousness, if it's the database or if it's your own personal uh, right. memory. So mm -hmm. my question was, if 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 people are, it's like, so for instance, like let's say two trained med meditators who know how to do the out of body, like you and Dennis Men Menry. Mm -hmm. Let's say you guys go out of body and is it possible for one of you guys to, okay, so like, let's say you going out of body, but you wrote down like a sequence of numbers. So if, could you, in, theory, go out of body with him, give him those numbers, and then he could speak them the same? Well, that's possible that you could trade information like that. But with Dennis and I, we were basically having a conversation uh, about what we saw and what we did and, and what happened while we were both out of body together. And the conversation, I'd talk and then he'd respond and he'd talk and I'd respond to him. You see, so you could say that one person was having that experience and the other person was just having an experience through that other person. They were just, you know, tapped into that other person's mind and weren't really there having an independent experience. That's a possibility for how that would work. But to me, that's a, that's an even more difficult thing to do than just to have two out of body experiences together. It's a, it's not the, it's not the simpler answer as far as how to explain that. So yes, that's a possibility though, that one is reading the mind of the other and just they're interacting with each other's minds like telepathically and they're seeing right. the same pictures, like you're seeing the same thing through his eyes. But it right. didn't always work that way because you see, the reason that's so hard is that I would see something and I'd point it out and then Dennis would see it. I'd say, oh, look at that. Do you see that thing? And he'd say, oh, you mean the thing that goes off to the side and then has that little circle there? And I would say, yes. And besides that, did you see that in the circle, there's a, you know, there's a red dot and he'd go, oh yeah, I didn't see that before. I see the red dot. So who's leading who you see, it was back and forth between us. So that would have meant that we were alternating reading each other's minds and seeing each other through their minds back and forth in a conversation. And that seemed to me just more far-fetched more problematic that uh, we could switch off like that that smoothly and the better the better explanation is that we were just both there in that reality together and we were having this you know this interaction about the things we saw that just is a whole lot simpler way of of explaining it but yes the other is possible 
I think it's just a lot less likely. I see. All right, thank you so much. I appreciate mm -hmm. that. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you, Lawrence. And Patricia, we have a new person with us today. Patricia, she's joining us for the first time in the fireside chat. Actually, the second time, but the first time she has a question. So please go ahead, Patricia. Thank you. Hi, Tom. Hi, Patricia. So um, my question is again about um, making intent. Um, and I, I want to know how to make an intent the right way. So um, I know you say it should be on the being level and um, that it's necessary to really want it. But um, how... Uh, many details have to be in there or how exactly ha has it to be it doesn't um, have to it doesn't have to be detailed it has to be clear enough that it's you know that it's meaningful that it has some precise meaning i shouldn't even say precise that it has some meaning so you don't want something real real general isn't as powerful let's say you're you just you have an intention to heal somebody and let's say they have uh, you know, a cancerous tumor someplace, and you could just say, well, be well. And that would be your intent, be well. You see, now that will help them, but it's not as powerful as if you use your intent on making that tumor go away. You see, because now you're more focused on a very specific thing. Mm -hmm. So even though the be well is helpful, it's not going to work as well to get rid of that tumor as if you really work on the tumor. So you don't need any more precision than what's required to define the problem that you're trying to work on. So let's say you have a fear of, of whatever, you know, being inadequate or something. I might as well use that. That seems to show up here a lot. And uh, if, that, if that fear is something you're trying to get rid of, then it's just general. All you have to say is I'm not going to make choices out of inadequacy anymore. That's all it has to be. No more detail than that. You don't have to specify what choice and, you know, that you're making or anything else, just in general, just name what it is that you, you know, you want. But try if you have, if you can be more specific, then you can be more specific, but it's not necessary. So even a very general intent will work very generally. Or a precise intent will work more just on that thing, but not necessarily on other things. You see, if you if you say be well, then you're helping them with their headache, you're helping with the tumor, you're helping them with the athlete's foot, you're helping them with everything in their body that needs to be more well. Whereas if you just work on the tumor, you're not doing anything at all for the headache or the athlete's foot. You know, you're just working on the tumor, but you're putting more energy just on that tumor. Now here, energy is a, is a metaphor. So sometimes something general like, you know, I don't want, this fear of my inadequacy to inform my decisions. Well, that's as much as you need to say. You don't have to be any more detailed than that. So it depends on what you're trying to do. Um, you do have to have it from the being level. That's very important. Uh, if it's from the intellect, it's very weak. From the being level, it's much stronger. And at the being level, yes, you have to really want it. You have to feel that you want it. You have to be you know, it has to be, you know, other people would say from the heart, you know, it has to be from the heart, not from the mind. That's another metaphor that you could, that you can use. I just say being level rather than from the heart. 
but uh, it probably means about the same thing to most people. So you have to really want it inside at the core. And if you do, then that's a powerful intent. Okay, thank you. And is it enough to want to get rid of something or do you have to be focused uh, focused on the goal? You know what on I the mean? Goal? The goal could be just getting rid of it if that's the goal. You know, if it's like a tumor, that would be the goal to get rid of it. So we don't have a cancerous tumor anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't have to be just that. You could focus on, you know, stage stage one, get that, and then focus on stage two. You know, you could break it down into pieces. You could just, uh, sometimes people work just by seeing the result. You know, they just see somebody in their mind. They see somebody uh, who's bedridden or something. They see them up walking around. So in their mind, they just focus on that person feels good enough and is able to get up and walk around. Maybe they're uh, maybe they had an accident in an automobile and it looks like they might be a paraplegic and not be able to use their their legs anymore. So you want to you want those nervous system to heal in such a way that they can use those legs. So you may just see them walking around. You don't have to actually go in, see the nerves, make the nerves, you know, regenerate down into the, you know, the, the cellular level. You may just go up into a general level of, of uh, putting your effort into make, seeing that person able to walk. Or if you know the physiology of the nervous system, you could go right down into that level of, of neurons and, and cell tissue in the in the nerve and try to repair that make sure that all the nerves from one side of the injury to the other get get reunited with the right with the right stuff and heal heal them you know one strand at a time you could do that too it's kind of whatever you know and how you best feel like you can solve the problem okay right, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Patricia. Uh, Greg, it's nice to have you back on the Fireside Chat. Please go ahead with your question for Tom. Hello. Um, so yeah, Tom, what I wanted to ask about was, uh, so I would say since this last November, when I was at TMI last, I really have like kind of latched on. I really, really feel like I've really gotten the practice of looking for my fears and getting rid of them. And so that's been going um, pretty well. And so my question, though, is that as I remove these fears, I'm left feeling light and like happier, but there's almost this kind of emptiness. And it's almost like before I removed a lot of fear, when I would think about plan making plans for life, it was they were all based on a fear. So I'd come up with all these plans and stuff, and it was like hectic in my mind all the time. And so now it's like, oh, I don't really need to come up with some big plan. But I also had this sense that if I don't make a plan, I'll just kind of uh, just kind of sit here and like let things happen but it's like I can get bored that way so the question is kind of like how do I like open back up to doing a bunch of different things but in a good way and not like having it be hectic like it was before it's well, kind of a new mode of operation for me I guess yes well it's a very good it's a very uh, positive uh, way to be you know it's a good problem to have right you've gotten rid of your fears and now you notice that all those techniques and ways of dealing with things that you used to use don't work anymore they're not you know they're not applicable anymore they're not there because the fear's not there so now you're going to have to deal with things in a different way than what you're used to so you've got these habits and you're finding out that your habitual approach isn't 
you know, isn't a good approach anymore. And uh, so you got to find, you have to develop some new habits and that takes a little bit of time. But the habits you need to develop is that you need to look for what's the, what's the minimum entropy? What's the low entropy path? What should I do that, that uh, you know, will, will um, make the bet, will work the best for everybody? So that's one way of looking at it. So that's now a new way of thinking about it, a new, a new plan you can make. What, what optimizes low entropy for everyone, not just me? Another plan would be, let's say, if it's something different than that, something that's not so interactive, you may say, well, um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, looking for a girlfriend. And uh, when I was fear-based, you know, I had all these issues, you know, with, with that relationship thing it was just real problematical and I couldn't do it. Well, now I don't feel that way. I feel much better about myself. But what do I do? You know, how do I go about that? Well, now you can just say, well, if you're going to find a girlfriend, you need to go places where girls are. You know, you need to go places where people are. You maybe need to join a, a club or an organization or take dancing lessons or whatever else comes to your mind that would be a place where you might meet females or other people just in general. But you don't have to have an attitude of exactly what you're going to do. You know, you may not want to try to manifest that particular girl or think about, oh, well, now I feel so much better. I'm going to go in there and just tear up the floor and this is going to be great. And I'll have this relationship. Now you've got expectations and those expectations won't help you. You know, now you're back into an ego, an ego uh, thing, looking uh, for how you're going to solve the problem. So you need to stare a course between expectations and ego and just doing things that are intelligent. You know, you're not going to find a girl sitting at your computer playing computer games, you know, unless you have a really interesting computer. So you'll have to get out of the house. You're going to have to go be social. You're going to have to interact and you're going to have to be yourself. You're going to have to not try to be likable or be this or be that or be a good conversationalist. You're going to have to just be yourself and trust that that's the best way to be. So you're no longer uh, working on it in the sense of trying to manipulate it. See? So now you're, that's the way that it works out best for everybody is if you don't try to manipulate. But you still still have to make a plan to get out of the house. So I don't know exactly what it is you're, you're talking about, but it's these kinds of things, this attitude about well, user intelligence, I can I can tell you what the main thing is. Uh, it's certainly not girls like I'm married, but uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, for me it's more like work. So like I have a job that's like it's fine. Like I could just keep working it, but I I work from home, so I am like kind of trapped in the house. There is that aspect of things, mm -hmm. and so I just kind of sit here and like do my job. My house is fine. Like my wife's fine. Like it's just kind of like things that I keep going, but I don't feel like I'm actually doing something, you know, I feel like I could grow and do something more meaningful. Well, ask yourself the question, how can I help? You know, how can I do something, you know, what could I do that's going to make life better or easier or happier for somebody and start right at home, you know, with the wife and, and uh, family and, you know, neighbors, friends, extended family, whatever, you know, what can I do? What would be helpful to, to these people? How can I make them a happier and spend your focus on, you know, 
making your wife happy on uh you know being a better father or whatever it is a better neighbor you know what could you do there how could you apply yourself or maybe it's just if i've got time and everybody around me is already happy then maybe i just want to learn what kind of what area would i like to learn in maybe i can start you know learning about such and such a thing and you can spend your time if everybody else is occupied and busy and you can't go around disturbing people because you want to make them happy you know then maybe you just ought to pick a subject and start to educate yourself about that subject or you know go uh, join the uh the healing circle on the uh mbt um healing thing on the forum and spend some time healing people so there's lots of things that you can get involved in. I guess it's your kind of your habit leaves you right now without any previous thing, you know. So you got to you got to form a new new habits, new ways of being. But there's always something useful that you can that you can do. There's always okay. somebody that needs help. There's always that, and you know you just do your work and your home, and it's like you're, you you maybe feeling like you've got extra energy and extra time. You you need to use it profitably look around see how you can help there's almost always people around that that would actually be happier if you would if you would pitch in and and do something or give them some time and attention or whatever often it's right in front of your face and you just don't see it because you've never seen it before but it'll come to you okay thanks um my second question has to do with npmr and operating an npmr so I've been, I still practice that and kind of following on the first question that what I've used it for, for a while is kind of, is, is dealing with the fear. Like I would have communication with guides and stuff. And so that was really helpful. And, um, moving forward, you know, I'll do these things like remote viewing or try to do things like out of body. And it's like, I get some degree of success, but what's coming to me lately is that I'm coming up against this, this barrier of where I feel like there's a lot more information coming into my consciousness on some level that I'm not allowing myself to perceive because it goes beyond like expectations that I have. I feel like that I've kind of boxed myself into like a super, you know, I just have this set of, of expectations about what I can do and it works this way. And maybe I can grow that like very, very, slowly but it's frustrating because i know that there's just i know that there's like it could go way beyond what i'm doing and i just i just want to like get rid of all that expectation but i have a i have a hard time doing that yeah well that's something to work on yeah it is hard to do that because you when you have beliefs expectations are really beliefs when you have beliefs you don't really see them as beliefs you see them as just the way things are you see them as reality so they're hard to you know they're hard to find and hard to deal with and hard to get rid of but just open your mind sometimes, just do like the wild card thing, you know, just open your mind and wait and see what happens without any expectations and maybe practice that some and maybe the first 10 times nothing will happen because you do have an expectation that nothing will happen if you don't do something. But keep working at it now and then and eventually when you kind of relax a little bit and forget about your expectation, something will happen. And then that will be another thing for you to work from. So, yeah, it's a slow it's a slow thing to do, but little by little, you'll expand your horizons beyond where they are now. Don't be impatient. Okay. Thank you.
Tom, our next question comes from Eric V. He asks, is meditation the natural state of a low-entropy being? If someone never does any formal meditation during his entire life, yet he consistently works on letting go of fear, ego, and belief, and is very successful at doing so, would you say that a person would inevitably end up in a constant state of meditation, despite the fact that he never practiced any formal meditation? In other words, is meditation the natural result of losing fear, ego and belief, is it the natural state of a low entropy being? Yes. Well, that's probably the shortest answer I've ever given. <laughs> so I'll say a little more. I don't want to, I don't want to outdo myself too much, but anyway, yes, is the simple answer. Um, it is, you don't have to meditate. You know, this thing I call meditation is a very broad basket. It's not just sitting down and saying a mantra or practicing with your breathing or whatever else meditation can be anything that you let go of the physical world and interact with whatever's in your head whatever's in your mind that's a meditation so you can do that just you know sitting at a you know in a you can do that sitting on a bus you know you just let all the busyness on the bus go and you just are inside your head uh um interacting with your consciousness you can do that anywhere and it doesn't have to be called meditation or it's not it's not a formal practice it can just be so yes people who are reduced get rid of their fears and and are working toward becoming love and they're successful at it even if they never formally meditated their life is a meditation what they're doing and getting in touch with themselves and others is a meditation so meditation is a tool and that tool is a natural part of your growing up, whether you ever learn how to meditate or call it meditation or not, not important. So yes, indeed, uh, a yes, yes, and yes to your, uh, to your questions. One more question Eric has, what's the mechanism behind gaining exceptional abilities from brain damage? There are a number of documented cases where people gain exceptional abilities from brain damage such as exceptional mathematical ability, the ability to perform uh, calendrical calculations of amazing complexity, extraordinary memory, the ability to play intricate piano pieces that take most people years to perfect, seeing geometric representations of mathematical formulas everywhere. Two questions. If the physical brain sets the constraints for what the consciousness can do, Shouldn't brain damage lead to more constraints rather than these types of exceptional abilities? How does MBT explain this? Uh, okay. Where do these expe uh, exceptional, exceptional abilities come from? All right. It's when you, have, when you have a physical altercation to your central nervous system, which we could call brain damage, it changes the constraints. Okay. Now, we tend to assume that it always increases the constraints but that's not necessarily true it just changes the constraints now if you get hit over the head with an iron pipe it's probably going to increase the constraints so that the the consciousness will have more constraints when playing that avatar but depending on what it was that damaged you particularly if it was an illness of some sort that uh, left you altered then the you know the better way to say it is that it changes the constraints. It can 
lesson constraints. And it can do some of both. It can create some additional constraints in this part of your uh, central nervous system and decrease constraints in other parts. So it just changes things. And however that change then changes the, the uh, you know, according to the rule set, however that change changes your, your being, then that's what the conscious will have to work with. So you may, um, you know, you may fall uh, off a ladder and suddenly start having, uh, you know, a lot of precognitive dreams that you didn't have before you fell off the ladder. That's just a modification of your constraints. So the biology can do either. Now, often what happens is that you were ready for that change. You were ready or you needed that change. And if that's the case, the fall or the accident just becomes a good excuse for that change starting to show itself. If it just happened to you one day while you were walking down the street or driving a car, there'd be no real reason for that. It would seem bizarre and magical and maybe uh, make you afraid of it because it would seem like voodoo or something. But if it happened after, you know, you got bitten by a dog or you fell off your bicycle or something, then you'd have something you could blame it on. So it could be sometimes the system just uses the accident in order to make some modifications that will give you a increased ability to grow up. So it may be that as well. But in any case, change can sometimes be positive. Often, uh, you know, changes will occur. The changes often don't occur instantly. So let's say you get something and you break both your legs and you're lying in a hospital bed for two months or three months because the breaks are such that it's a long time before you can bear any weight. Well, during that time, you don't have a whole lot to do. So maybe you start, uh, you know, doing uh, math in your head or something, and it just gets easier and easier and easier as you do it. And it may have been able to do that anytime, but you never really sat down and did math for three months or for you know two months before. So you're just developing a skill you always had that you just never developed because you never had that situation that puts you in a place to develop it. So it could be some of that. So there's like most things, there's probably five or six different ways that these things could happen. And each one probably is un unique. They're probably not all the same or similar things. So it's not just a one thing that might happen. So maybe the system's taking advantage of an opportunity to change something for somebody that uh, they can, they can uh, kind of make that change and it hides in the uncertainty produced by the, by the accident or the trauma. Or maybe it's just a, some person now gets a chance to do things that otherwise they wouldn't have done and that that leads them off to a different uh, place. Or maybe it actually changes, uh, you know, shakes uh, something up inside the brain that, you know, a hormone or something that just makes your chemistry different. And that different chemistry may have different constraints. And some of those constraints may be greater or less, or some of each. Um, hard to say, but constraints are constraints. They always don't have to increase when something happens to you, they can sometimes decrease.